Job chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. And you can be seated. So we're going to be diving into a lot of different things as we make our way through the book of Job. Uh, on the one hand, I don't want to get too bogged down in, uh, in the weeds on some of these things. But on the other hand, there are so many like really cool things in the book of Job that I think it's worth taking the time to, to stop and, and just kind of pouring over a little bit. And, and so it's really hard to pass them up. We see that really in the very first chapter. And, and the big thing that I want to get across this morning is we need to be very careful judging people based on the limited amount of information that we have. If you take nothing else away from, from this sermon this morning, that's it. We need to be very, very careful judging people based on limited information. In, in our sinful nature, we are so judgmental about things and we can warp things and, and who people are in the situation that we seem to understand. And, and all the while, we really have no idea what's really going on with them truly. This is true outside of the church. Sadly, this is also true inside of the church. We see this sort of judgment um, on limited information inside the church. Sometimes it's even considered a spiritual virtue. I've had, I've had many people, um, you know, tell me that, uh, they have the quote unquote gift of discernment. They can discern spirits. And so, so they, they know people even before they've really even talked to them. They just kind of get a feeling about them. That kind of thing. They, they have a word of knowledge or a gift of discernment. This, those kind of words are more common to be heard in, in charismatic circles, but I think oftentimes even in, in less charismatic circles, those kind of ideas comes up. You know what that's actually called? It's actually called prejudice. When we judge somebody based on limited information, and we think that we know their whole life, we know everything about them, that is prejudice, and that is in fact sin. To think that we really know a person's house. Sometimes it's, sometimes we, we judge them negatively, right? We, we blackball them. We think, oh, well, you know, I just get a bad feeling about them. And so we're just not going to go around them, that sort of thing. The other problem is when we go, oh, no, 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 like, I see who they are. I, I got a word of knowledge. It's good. Like, we should, these, this is a leader right here. We need to thrust them into leadership when we know nothing about them. Right? So, so it's bad on both sides. We have to be very, very careful. And again, it's just presumptuous judgment. It's, it's arrogance 
to think that we know a person's heart. Now, that doesn't mean that we should set aside maybe some gut instincts or some some first impressions. We can we can be careful with people and cautious with people, but those gut instincts, whatever they might be, they cannot be the driver of how we really evaluate people. They they just can't. They can they can maybe inform us to some extent, but from a human perspective, we don't know much about them. If we, if Job were alive today, it's sort of the same thing. If we knew Job and just kind of knew him from afar, really all that we would know about him is that he's wealthy, he's got a big family, and the, he appears to be happy and he appears to be godly. That's, that's really all that we would know about him. And even with those few descriptions, we could, we could really actually misjudge him. We could really, we could come to some conclusions that are not happy. I mean, th- think about when, when you think of somebody who has money or doesn't have money, maybe some of the thoughts that go through your head or the thoughts that go through other people's head. Oh, well, they're wealthy, so they can't be happy, right? That's, that's not possible for wealthy people to be happy. Or if, if they were really godly, they'd give all that money away. That's what they would do. If they were really, like, godly people, they're not rich. Like, they give it all away. That's what, that's what Jesus wants. Or it's daddy's money. Like they didn't earn that. They're not hardworking. They're lazy. They just inherited that. They're just they're just milking their their parents. Or in the the false gospel of health and wealth, the prosperity gospel. Well, if you were really godly, you'd be rich. If you really trusted God for provision, you would be rich. And so, just just even how we judge people based on our perception of their wealth can be sinful when. All we might know is, hey, maybe they, they appear to be well off. Or maybe we judge other things about their life and, and, and what's going on. Well, they seem to be happy, but, but I'm sure that's all fake. They, they can't really be that happy family. Like, they're, that, that doesn't exist. No one's really as happy as Job's family, where all the, you know, the kids just love each other, and they're inviting each other to each other's house, and just, just celebrating all the time, and, and like that. That's, that's a show, I'm sure. We don't know that. We know nothing, we know nothing about that at all. And so we are prone to judge people on very limited information. I think this is true of all of us. We can easily come to conclusions about other people's lives when we just really don't have a clue. We just don't have enough information. And actually, this is really the problem with Job's friends as you read through the book is that they assume things about Job that they can't possibly know. Oh, the reason this happened to you, Job, is because you've got some secret sin that you're hiding from all of us. Or Job, your kids, they were sinful. That's why they did it. They don't know the kids. They have no idea why tragedy comes into life. And that's that's really the hitch of the book is actually, it's not because of some hidden sinfulness that Job is tested. It's actually because of his righteousness that he's tested. That's the whole point. Is God goes, hey, there's here's a blameless guy, Satan. Have you seen him? Like, it's because of his intrinsic godliness, because he is following the Lord, that all of these calamities come upon him. So all that to say, we need to be very careful about judging people, both in a good way and in a bad way, with limited information. And so I want to just sort of walk through this description of Job a little bit and pull out some some observations, some some descriptions here that I think will be helpful for us. And the very first one, I think, is really the most important one. If you get nothing out else out of this, just write this down, and I don't care if you nap after that. But, but really, the most important assessment of your life, listen, 
The most important assessment of your life is God's assessment of your life. That's the most important assessment. Doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. Doesn't even matter what you think. Paul says in Corinthians, I don't know of anything against myself, but that does not acquit me. Means look, even when I look at my life, I think it's okay, but you know who stands in judgment over me on the last day? It's God. It's God who stands in judgment over me. And that's really the most important assessment in all of our lives is, is God's assessment. Look at verse one. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. That's actually a pretty cool introduction. There's probably no more stark introduction in all of the Bible than the introduction that we are given to Job. He, he's introduced as really the pinnacle of godliness. If we know nothing else about him, we know that, that Job, it seems as in an objective way, is a very godly man. What I want to do is I want to take those four phrases and I want to talk about them for just a little bit to help us understand maybe some some of the things that that give God this estimation of Job. So he described four ways. He's blameless. He is upright. He fears God and he turns away from evil. There's a little bit where this is a poetic flourish of a description of Job, but this is also an objective description of Job. The first two descriptions have more to do with the outside, what we would see on the outside of Job's life. The second two descriptions are more internal as to what is going on with Job. But these are all helpful categories, I think, for us to consider. So Job is blameless. He is blameless. What does that mean? Well, blameless does not mean perfect. It doesn't mean that he is he is perfect or without flaw or without sin. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on all the in all the earth who does good and never sins. There's no such thing as, as somebody who is perfect, who is without sin. So that's not Job. Job does sin. In fact, we'll see later on the book where he expresses his sinful heart, I think. So there are no perfect people. Job is not perfect. But blameless, as the word implies, simply means without blame. You cannot blame the guy for anything. There, There is no obvious sin in his life that people could point to and go, yeah, he's got that though. He, he seems like a nice guy, but there's there's this thing. No, he is... He is blameless. He's blameless. In the New Testament, we've, we see that phrase that so-and-so is above reproach. And it's that same idea. Somebody who is above reproach, they're above the fray of accusation of legitimate sinfulness. That's, that's what above reproach is. That's what blamelessness is. There's just nothing obvious in their life on the outside that is sinful. On the converse, sort of the flip side of the same coin, Job is upright. He is upright. Blameless means without obvious sin. Upright means that, again, according to anybody's outward estimation, he seems to follow the commands of God. He seems to do what God has called him to do. Theoretically, somebody could be blameless, but not actually upright. They, it's, yeah, there's no, there's no obvious sin, but there's no obvious holiness in their lives either. They just, they just kind of go along through life. It's, it's like, well, I've never fumbled the football. Yeah, but you've never played the game either. Like you've never gotten any yards. Well, I've never burned the cookies, but you've never been in the kitchen either. Right? So, so it's, it's the positive side of, of Job's life. 
Yes, he, he has no obvious sin in his life, but also it seems as though he walks according to righteousness. First Timothy 5 says that good works are conspicuous. They're obvious. Somebody who walks according to righteousness, you're going to see that. Not because they're trying to put on a show, or hopefully that not because they're trying to put on a show, but just because good works sort of ooze out of people who love God. We saw that in Matthew chapter 5, that we should let our light shine, right? So that God gets glory. So, so those are the external things. But here's where it gets good. Now we've got two internal descriptions, two internal ideas. He fears God and he turns away from evil. So what does it mean that Job fears God? This is an internal reverence, an internal awe of the Lord. This is what's going on in the inside of his heart. We, we could say that Job loves the Lord his God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. This, this is the internal affection that, that Job has, or affection, excuse me, that Job has for God. So, so Job's righteousness is not pretend. That's the point. It's not fake. It's not a show. It's from the inside that he fears God. He reverences God and he wants to please God. So he's, he's holistic. That's what we saw in the Sermon on the Mount of, of Jesus hammering hypocrisy. People who have a good show on the inside, but it's their heart that is wicked. Job is, is blameless on the outside and he is just on the outside, but it's his heart that also fears the Lord. He seeks to fear him in public and in private. And he turns away from evil. Again, this is, this is internal. This is a disgust for evil. It's a disgust for those things that are not pleasing to God. Now, now, I think if we're honest, like, like as we, as we battle through our sin, there are some sins that we intrinsically hate. You know, you think of the, think of that sin, you know, somebody kidnapping little kids or something like that. Like, and you just hate that. Like, there's that internal thing. But sometimes with our own sin, we kind of coddle it. Right? We kind of, well, it's not that bad. It's not, it's not really all that. Their sin is really bad. My sin, well, we, everybody struggles that way, right? And the battle of the Christian life and following Christ is actually to align our heart with God's heart that all sin, even the sin that we struggle with and secretly desire, would be put to death. That God would change our heart and he would mold us, not just externally, but internally, that we would hate the things that he hates. So, Job is blameless, upright, he fears God, and he turns away from evil. Here's, here's the cool thing. That's not just whoever wrote the book of Job. It may have been Job, it's probably, it's probably another author. That's not just their assessment, it's God's assessment of Job's life. This is the cool part. Look down in verse 8. We'll unpack this a little bit more next week. But but notice, and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Not only does God give the exact same description that we just read earlier, but he actually adds two more things. He says there's no one like him on all of the earth. He is peerless in his righteousness and his holiness. But then he adds, notice down in chapter two, after the first, after the first wave of, of sort of tragedy happens, but look down in verse two. 
or chapter two, verse three, excuse me. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him all and all, excuse me, none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. He's also a man of integrity. So he's blameless, upright, fears God, turns away from evil, peerless on all the planet, and he is a man of integrity, both during trial and before trial and after trial. He is pure, and that is God's assessment of him. He still holds fast to his integrity. He's always had integrity, and he's still got it. That's what, that's what God is saying. Which brings us back to really the basic point, which is the most important assessment of your life is God's assessment of your life. That, that's the only thing that matters. Doesn't matter what your spouse thinks, what your family thinks, what your friends think, what your coworkers think, what the media thinks. None of that matters. The most important assessment of our lives is the Lord. What does He think of our lives? Are we blameless? Are we upright? Do we really fear God on the inside, reverence and awe? And do we turn away from evil? We, we can fool a lot of people. You guys can fool me. You can fool your spouses, fool your family, fool everybody. You can't fool God. He sees it all. It's all laid out for him like an open book. And as Christians, we know that our standing before God rests on the merits of Christ alone. The only standing that we have before God is because of Jesus who took our sin and who gives us righteousness. And that based all on faith, not of works. So we know that positionally our standing before God is, is all based on Christ. But at the same time that we know God has called us to a holy calling. He's called us to purity. He's called us to integrity. Lives of such purity and such integrity that people look at us as the reflection of the glorious holiness of God here on earth as we walk around. It's God's assessment that really matters. Second observation I want to make is that some of the godliest people look nothing like us. Some of the godliest people look nothing like us. We see in verse 1 that there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and then we're given the description. This is a little bit by way of background, but what we need to understand is that Job is not a Jew. He's not an Israelite. All evidence suggests actually that, that he is a Gentile. He doesn't live in Israel. He lives in Uz, which, which the best anybody can understand is probably several hundred miles to the east of Israel in what is now modern day Saudi Arabia. So the godliest man on the planet doesn't live anywhere near God's covenant people and he doesn't live anywhere near the promised land. He's a, an Arabian farmer. How did Job come to know God? Well, we don't know. Job was probably someone who lived at the time of Abraham. That's, that's the best that we can know. How do we know that? Well, first of all, at the end of the book, he lives to, to be 140 years old. That's kind of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob kind of ages, right? When the, the age was still a little bit higher than what we experience. Job also makes no reference at all to the Mosaic law. Makes no reference to the law, 
makes no reverence to the tabernacle or the temple or the covenant with Moses or the promised land. Now, now, if you think about that, like if you're reading through the Old Testament, that kind of stuff is talked about all the time, all the time, either either to establish it in the law or to return to it in the prophets. And we get none of that in the book of Job. And so some of those references, it's it's almost like the, the silence is deafening, that, that we don't have those. So we think that Job is, is definitely earlier than Moses. He's living, living earlier than Moses, and he's probably in Abraham's time, timeline. The theology of Job is also a little bit different than what we see in other places in the Old Testament. Not that it's contradictory to the rest of the Bible, but just what it emphasizes is a little bit different than what we see in the rest of the Old Testament. There's not a lot of emphasis on atonement. Although we, we get just a little bit of a picture of that here in verse 5 where he's sacrificing for his children on the off chance that they, that they sinned in their hearts. But other than that, there's, it's not really developed all that much. There's not a huge uh, understanding of sacrifice or the love of God or the mercy of God. In Job, what we see is the emphasis is on suffering and on justice and on God's sovereignty and his power and his omniscience. Job's, Job's theology is, is not unorthodox, it's totally orthodox. It's just that what we see out of Job's mouth is, is maybe a little bit different emphasis than what we see in other books of the Bible. So, so here's, a, here's a man who's, and the point I want to make is, here's a man whose theology maybe emphasizes some things that, that is not the norm in, in, in biblical times. And maybe, maybe we have theologies that, that we emphasize, some attributes about God that we emphasize. And maybe some people emphasize some other attributes of God. Well, how can they be godly? They emphasize those things. I emphasize these things. They can be godly. Do they follow the Lord Jesus Christ in faith? Do they hold on to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints? Maybe they have a different tradition. Maybe they have a different background. Let me ask you this. Who do you think the most godly person on the planet right now is? What what comes to your mind? What 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 do you think of? I, I often think of like missionaries in really difficult places. Like they gotta be really godly to put up with that for a long time, eating bugs and stuff. You know, or maybe there's some pastors there, you know, somewhere, whatever. Would you be surprised if I told you it was a very wealthy Middle Eastern farmer that was the godliest man on the planet? Because that's who Job is. He's a very wealthy Middle Eastern farmer. Now I was I was just kind of thinking, like, like, really? Like if God was to make some assessment, and we all heard, like, like who would this be? Is it is it like a, a teenage girl in the slums of China sacrificing what little she has so the people around her can eat as she tells them the gospel? Is that who that is? Maybe it's a truck driver in South America, you know, down in Peru. You know, he's he's all in a big rig. But he loves Jesus, and he's blameless, and he's upright, and he fears God, and he turns away from evil. Maybe it's, maybe it's a super wealthy benefactor who gives millions to orphanages all throughout Europe. Or maybe it's a nanny in Russia who, who takes care of the children of some big head of state in Russia. I have no idea. I have no idea. The point is, is that I think we often have pigeonholed who we think the godliest people on the planet are. And we don't think that, that people outside of that little box could really be all that godly. And so we limit 
really the impact that people might have on the kingdom. We might even limit the impact of our own impact uh, on the kingdom. And so this cuts two ways. First of all, we need to make sure that we're not dismissing people out of hand who might actually teach us something about the Lord, even though maybe they emphasize different things. So we have to be very careful about that. Maybe we maybe we dismiss them because they're young. Maybe we dismiss them because they're old. Maybe we dismiss them because they go to a different church or have a different theology or, or whatever. The question is, like, do they love Jesus? Are they trusting in him alone for their salvation? Are they seeking to root out sin in their own life and follow him in a life of, of purity? Then maybe a lot of those other technical aspects don't matter. The gospel matters, but there's a lot of other stuff that just doesn't matter. The second thing is, if a sheep rancher in Saudi Arabia can be the godliest man on the planet, then certainly we can strive for holiness and godliness too. And what I mean is we, we can't say, well, yeah, but I'm just this in life. And therefore, I can't really pursue the Lord. Yeah, I'm, 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 just, I'm just this. You know, if I were that, then I would really pursue Jesus. No, it doesn't work that way. Your job, your school, your life, your responsibilities, your physical ailments, because we'll see that Job has physical ailments a little bit later on, are not an excuse for being lazy and pursuing Jesus with your whole heart. They're not. Paul says we run so as to win the prize of the upward calling in Christ Jesus. We run with our whole heart, no matter where you're at in life, no matter how old or how young you are, no matter what your station is in life. We run because this is where God has stationed us. So the most important assessment of your life is God's assessment. And some of the godliest people on the planet look nothing like us. The third, and this is where we get into this prejudice kind of thing, and I think we need to be careful, is that a person's family is no indication of their godliness. A person's family is no indication of their godliness. Look at verse 2. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. And he possessed all these sheep, but he also had servants. And in ancient times, servants would have been sort of an extension of their family. We don't know if these were slaves or if these were voluntary servants who had submitted to Job. We, we don't know. We're not sure. But nevertheless, this is his family. What's interesting is this in ancient times is literally the perfect family. In fact, it's so perfect that most liberal scholars say it's too perfect and therefore Job is probably fictional and couldn't have existed. Like that's how perfect this this family is. And here's why. And and, and I don't believe any of that nonsense and I, I doubt you guys believe any of that nonsense too. But let me just go down that rabbit hole for just a minute. So, so bear with me. So in the Old Testament, both of those numbers, seven and three, are sacred numbers. They're, they're numbers of perfection and completion. So God rested on the, the, on the seventh day. So, so there's this rest, there's this completion. In fact, in Hebrew, to covenant with somebody, to promise with them, is to seventh with them. That's what the word is. It's to seventh with them. It's to complete with them. That, that's what you're, that's what you're doing. So, so in seven, this is, uh, we, we have a, a number of completion. You can kind of play that out a little bit all through the Old Testament. Um, 
Three is the same way we sang it this morning. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is perfect in holiness is what the author is trying to get across in Isaiah chapter 6. That his, his holiness is his perfect attribute. And so we have, we have seven boys, we have seven daughters, and so what Job has is a family that is doubly perfect. That's what he has. He, he literally has the most perfect family. And so liberal scholars are sure that Job can't be a real person because there's no way that God would ever give somebody seven sons and three daughters. Can't, God, God's not sovereign enough to do that, apparently. Now, again, I know most of us don't wrestle with that, but, but that's just all nonsense. God can bless people with however he wants to bless people. And in fact, I, I want to show you something, and, and this is, this is going to be a little bit wild because actually these kids are, are all destroyed. And then God gives Job another family. Guess how many sons Job gets? He gets seven sons. Guess how many daughters he gets? He gets three daughters. Look back at Job 42 for just a second. I want to show you something that I think is a little bit of an insight into to the reality that these are these are real people. So Job 42, right at the end of the book, verse 12. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuch. I have no idea what that means. If you name your daughter Karen Hapuch, that is awesome. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his son's sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. So again, he has seven more boys, three more girls. There's an interesting fact that we learn about the girls that doesn't lead this to be fiction. What's that fact? It's their names. They're named. Here we are at the end of the book. If it were fictitious, why name them? Especially at the end of the book. They don't play any more role in the rest of the book of Job. They don't play any more role in the Bible. We don't gain any extra information that sheds light on the rest of the book by by learning their names. If it were fiction, it would just be, well, and they lived happily ever after the end. But here we actually have their names. We actually have a physical description of, of who they are. That's a long way to say that these are real people, which I'm, again, I'm sure none of you have doubted. But, but again, the, the main point here is that what a person's family looks like is no indication of their own godliness. It might be an indication of how God has chosen to bless somebody, but not of personal holiness. Whether or not you have a spouse is not an indication necessarily of godliness. Who your spouse is is not an indication of godliness. Who your kids are, how many kids you have, how many are walking with the Lord, how many are completely rebellious to the Lord is no indication of your own personal holiness. R.C. Sproul, who believed in the sovereignty of God as, as really as much as anybody else, he said that uh, that raising kids is 10% 
perseverance, and 90% luck. And he said that tongue-in-cheek because, I mean, you, you can have the godliest parents on the planet, and you can have the most rebellious kids, or you can have pagans, and they all, all their kids come to faith in Jesus. And he said that, that it's, that it's luck. He doesn't believe in luck. There's no such thing as luck. There's only sovereignty, right? But he said that because it, it just, it seems like sometimes no matter how hard you try, like it really just is up to God. You know what? It really just is up to God. So a person's family has no bearing on personal holiness. Again, the same thing is true with spouses. Some of the godliest women in the Bible are those with the most wretched husbands. You remember in 1 Samuel 25, you have Abigail, and David is going to go, and, and he's actually going to slaughter Abigail's husband, Nabal. Nabal means fool, but fool insulted David. And so David's like, all right, guys, strap on the swords, we're going to go. And here's Abigail, just an amazingly wise and godly woman who stops David in his tracks, and he is so blessed by her, he rejoices at her. I think it was like 10 days later, Nabal dies, and he's like, I'm taking Abigail. She's the one. Well, she was really like number three at that point, but you get what I'm saying. Like, she was godly. But if you based her based on Nabal, you'd be way off. You'd have no, you'd have no connection. And again, we, we, we do this. We, we assume that because maybe two people come to church that they're, that they're both equally yoked and godly. It's not true. It's not true. We also assume that maybe maybe people who are out on the fringes or whatever are struggling, like that they're not godly. Maybe they are. We just don't know what's going on in their hearts. I, I do want to say, obviously, that we can influence our family for godliness. There's no doubt about that. that. That we should be trying to influence and pray for and encourage our family unto following the Lord Jesus. But that does not for sure declare whether or not we are godly or not. All right, back in Job 1. A person's wealth is number four. A person's wealth is no indication of their godliness. Verse three, he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. He was the richest man in the East. There's, there's really no way that we can put a modern day dollar amount on Job's wealth because it was peerless. It, it was without equal in all of the East. It would have been, I mean, we could say billions of dollars, whatever that even means, but, but he was without equal in what he owned. And actually, this is, this is another way that we know that Job is very early because his wealth is tabulated in the amount of animals that he has. It's not in the amount of land that he has, and it's not in the amount of gold or silver that he has. It's actually in the amount of animals that he has. That's how the, the ancient people in the Bible were, were, were shown to be rich. In fact, Nabal, fool from 1 Samuel 25, he was exceedingly wealthy, and he had a 1,000 sheep. Exceedingly wealthy. Well, Job's got 7,000, if that gives you some kind of... Kind of an idea. I'm sorry, Nabal had 3,000 sheep. Job has seven. He has 14 in the end. He's crazy rich. That's who he is. He's crazy rich. But, but with Job, we also learned that by chapter one, he's no longer rich. It's all taken away. And then we fast forwarded to chapter 42, and not only is it back, 
It's double what he had in the meantime. But it's been the same Job the whole time. The same Job the whole time. And so we know that a person's wealth or their lack of wealth has no bearing on their godliness, whatever else we might think of them. Now, their godliness might indicate what they do with their wealth, but it's not an indication of whether or not someone is truly truly righteous. And especially in America, we need to be very careful. It's easy for us to assume things about those who have money or don't have money. I'll just be honest. In my heart, when I see somebody who goes through a tragic time and they don't have enough money financially, I'm like, well, were you a really good steward with your money in the first place? Like, that's my instant heart. And, And there's a lot of times where, yeah, it's true. They were bad stewards with their money. I get that. But that's not always the case. Not always the case. Some people are just, they're just hard up. They've had, they've had tragedies that take their money or they were never, they were never very well off in the first place. So you have to be careful applying moral categories to, to people with money or without money. Or they must be really godly because they have a lot of money. That doesn't work that way either. We have to be very careful evaluating how much people have or even what they have. I cannot believe that so-and-so bought that. How does that please Jesus? Well, is it intrinsically sinful? Like, did they buy a casino? Like, what are we talking about? Did they buy a car? Are cars sinful? And this happens in business. I've talked to Christians who are, are in business, and they are really bad in business because they think it's wrong to make a profit. Right? It, go, it goes both directions. Like, oh, that, that's bad. And I, I'll tell you, I was one of those Christians who was in business, and I felt guilty about making a profit. I, I, I've told you guys that like, I, I worked in the granite countertop business. And I, I remember my boss having to come to me because we would make just crazy amounts of money. And he's like, Jason, like these people that we're selling this granite countertop to, they're not in the poorhouse. They will make it. They will eat another meal after they put in their shiny rocks on their countertops. They will. And he said, you, you have to understand, like you just see a dollar amount. He's like, I've got a hundred other families that I am providing for with what you see is just pure profit. It's not pure profit. Like there's a cost associated with it. And I just kind of step back and go, oh, okay. It's, it's not wrong to see a, a, a gross margin dollar amounts. He had a nice car. He had a nice house, but he provided for a lot of people. And his wisdom and business is what put a lot of food on a lot of tables. That's the same thing with Job. In fact, I want to I want to show you something real quick. Look over at Proverbs thirty-one. What's Proverbs thirty-one known for? The woman of God, the godly woman. She's not a real woman. No woman could ever be what she is. the The point is that this is just a list of virtues that are godly. That's all this is. But I just just notice the godly woman who takes care of her home, but notice how she is just financially. This is kind of striking. Look down in verse 10. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings... Her food from afar, 
She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She's taking care of all these other people. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hand to the distaff, that's a spindle, and she and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor, she's generous, and she reaches out her hand to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers them to the merchant. And then he goes on. Do you realize the modern, like the, the model woman in the Bible is killing it financially? Like she, she's killing it. Yeah. She opens her hand to the poor. She's very generous. She takes care of all of her, all of her, her servants, that sort of thing. But making a profit is not contrary to godliness. It's, it's not at all. She, she closes everybody in scarlet. You know who wears scarlet? Kings in ancient times. And she's dressed in Gucci. Are we judging people who are dressed in Gucci? Probably. Should we? Probably not unless we talk to them. This is, this is the modern godly woman. Having nice things is not necessarily vanity. It might be. It's not necessarily vanity. We need to watch our hearts. Part of what makes her so godly is her ability to rightly understand money. She knows how to balance generosity with wise investments. She gets, she gets the balance. You remember Lydia in Acts 16, the, the lady in Philippi? was the first convert that, that came to faith in Jesus in Philippi. She was a seller of purple goods. Not only did she wear Gucci, she owned a Gucci storefront. And because she was able to make money, she could house the entire missionary team as they were going by. She had a huge house. She used her wealth for the glory of God. What we need to understand is the gospel comes to people in all stations of life, wealthy or poor. And so those who are poor should not grumble against those who are wealthy. Those who are wealthy should be generous with those who are less. That's what we see all throughout the Bible. If you're poor, know that you have an inheritance laid up in heaven that's much more than anything that you'll ever see on this earth. And if you're wealthy, if you're well off, understand that that's actually God's money and you should be using it for his glory. It's okay for you to enjoy it, but you should also be generous. The Lord wants us to be faithful. Last point is that we should be encouraged to be a blessing to our family, whatever our family is. Whatever our family is. Back in Job 1, at the end, we see Job's influence and his godliness in his family. So in verse 4, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. That may have been his birthday, or it may have been just they cycled through the weeks. We don't know. But they would have a feast, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Maybe the party got a little too crazy. And they said something or did something in their heart that should not have been done. 
And thus Job did continually. I think it's safe to say that Job's desire to please the Lord rubbed off on his kids. He was a godly father, and I think God honored his prayers. We have this family of of children where they are independently loving each other and inviting each other over and and, and in enjoying one another's company. And we see that in verse 5, the personal holiness of a man who is so concerned for his spiritual, his children's spiritual welfare, that after a party, just on the off chance, maybe this happened, Lord, that they said something in their heart that would be a curse to you. I'm going to offer up a sacrifice for every single one of them. That's pretty awesome. Here's a father who is dedicated to his children spiritually. And they might not even know it. They might not even know. Dad's out there rising early in the morning to sacrifice and pray for the forgiveness of their children. This is the model of Jesus. Remember, as he's hanging on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's the model of Stephen as he's being stoned to death in Acts. Forgive them for they know not what they do. This is Job praying to the Lord for his children. Father, forgive them for they may have cursed you. They don't know what they are doing. He's the family priest. He is the Christ-like figure in their lives, interceding on their behalf nonstop so that they would be presented holy and blameless before the Lord. And it seems as though that example did not go unnoticed because a lifetime of doing that seems to have caught on with the children. The children generally love each other. I'll apply this to everyone in just a minute, but especially... For the dads, this is what we need to be doing for our children. We need to be praying for our children, rising and interceding for our children. On the off chance that they've done something that would, that would be a, a blot to the Lord. And praying that the Lord would be gracious in their lives. In a broader sense, this is, this should be all of us. Praying and interceding for our family. Being a witness to our family. Praying for your brothers and your sisters and your grandpas and your aunts and your uncles and your neighbors. That if they have cursed God in their heart, by the grace of God, they would turn to Christ for forgiveness and live lives of repentance. Blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of our brother Job. And we pray too that our hearts would be pure before you that there would be no evil way within us, that we would fear you, turn away from evil, and that we would live lives of holiness for your glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.